This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday, launching on the 3rd of November. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Politicians from all sides are always telling us that it's a good thing. Labour will fight the next election on economic growth. I have three priorities for our economy. Growth, growth and growth. Growth, measured by our ever-increasing gross domestic product, the monetary value of all the goods and services a country produces and sells. To grow, we have to produce more, do more. But is it really possible to keep growing forever? We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? We're already exceeding our planetary boundaries, burning too much coal and gas, overfishing, covering the earth in plastic waste. Yesterday was finance day at COP27. So today we're asking, do we need to rethink our endless pursuit of economic growth and instead pursue a more radical goal of ditching growth altogether and putting the planet and its inhabitants first? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Professor Tim Jackson, you're the director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey. And for decades, you've been focused on the issue of how we can prosper within the constraints of our very finite planet. Something you talk about in your work is the myth of growth. Can you explain that myth for us? Yeah, I mean, I don't use myth necessarily in a pejorative way because I think every culture has to have a progress story. And so I use the expression, the myth of growth, to describe what I think our progress narrative is, a narrative where prosperity is almost literally cashed out in terms of growth in the GDP, the gross domestic product. That's only troubling when a myth is inconsistent with the planetary boundaries uh, within which we have to thrive. 
But since the Industrial Revolution, economic growth has lifted countless people out of poverty, increased life expectancy and education levels. What would you say to people who see economic growth as inherently good? I think it's a mistake to think of it as inherently good. The only things actually that really continue to grow endlessly in nature turn out to be quite bad things like cancers. So this idea that we think of growth as good is natural up to a point because when you have too little, having some more of it is a good idea. The myth of growth emerged at a time at which for the most part, we didn't have good enough food and we didn't have decent housing or decent water supplies or secure energy supplies. And so I'm quite prepared to accept that argument that growth has improved the qualities of people's lives and that it will continue to do that and should continue to do that for the poorest. There are very strong arguments to suggest that the growth that we've achieved in the global north has been at the expense of the global south and continues to be at the expense of the Global South, obviously, because of the impact on climate. Tim, we hear some economists arguing for green growth, while others push for post-growth or degrowth. What do we mean by these two different approaches? On a finite planet, the growth-based economy, as we've come to know it, is unsustainable. And there's very few people who actually dispute that. You know, logically, we could say there's two alternatives. One is to say that, okay, this kind of growth is obviously dirty and materially intensive and environmentally damaging, but what about another kind of growth? Sometimes green growth, inclusive growth, smart growth, sustainable growth. Of course, it would be fantastic if we could have a form of growth that would go on forever and that would never destroy the planet but we also have to reality check that and we have to ask the question, is it achievable? And that's where the second option comes in. The idea that actually we don't necessarily have to increase the size of our economy endlessly to improve the quality of people's lives. And that's the position that I like to think of as post-growth. Some people refer to it in terms of degrowth. So this post-growth or degrowth, it sounds like an excellent goal, right? I mean, a future where we'd all flourish, but not at the expense of the earth and all its resources. But how does it actually work in practice? What sort of things will we see happening on the ground? Well, that is, of course, the multi-million, billion dollar question. I think we have some very good ideas. So we can think, for example, about enterprise as being profit maximization by extracting materials out of the earth, producing them as fast as possible, selling them as fast as possible, and hoping people throw them away as fast as possible. That's the vision of enterprise that's emerged out of a growth-based capitalism. But what if we were to turn the idea of enterprise on its head and see enterprise, for example, as a way of providing the services that we need in society to flourish. What I'm describing in a way is a sort of systematic revision of our economic principles and with two things in mind. One is that it's people's well-being over the longer term that matters. And the second is that it's that pursuit of well-being has to happen within planetary boundaries. But what you find when you look beyond our material needs 
as human beings, once we have decent nutrition and a decent level of security in relation to our housing, our aspirations are social and psychological rather than material in nature. What matters to us is friendship and connection. The world in which we're thinking about post-growth actually focuses on the relationship and what the relationship needs rather than on the products and the materials that we have used as substitute for our psychological needs. It still does feel a bit abstract and theoretical to me, Tim. I mean, what kinds of things might we see companies doing in a sort of post-growth world rather than what wouldn't we see them doing, if you know what I mean? Let's take energy as an example. It's not coal, oil and gas that we need in and of themselves. It's things like thermal comfort, lighting. What we've grown up with is a set of energy companies that are very good at selling us more coal, oil and gas. And what we need is energy companies that are delivering those kinds of services. Okay, that might look like companies offering repair services and recycling rather than making new things or providing really energy efficient technologies or more localised production. But I wonder if you could paint a picture of what daily life might look like for someone living in a post-growth world like the one you're describing. I mean, I should say, first of all, that there are many, many different kinds of futures for a post-growth world. One of them is a post-growth world in which we deny that we're in that world, in which we still continue to pursue growth, in which, which things become desperately unequal. And that is the outcome to which we are headed at the moment, is that dystopian post-growth world. So the challenge is actually to create a post-growth world in which it is still possible to prosper, in which people can have decent lives. One of them is a world where, for example, we work less because we're not continually priming a growth-based system, so our lives have more leisure in them. What we do with that leisure time matters. So in a post-growth world that's sustainable, we can't say, well, everybody's working a 21-hour week and then we all go out shopping. It is a world in which we're less driven by consumer things and more driven by the inner strength of our relationships and our purpose in the world. And what I've described there is one version, if you like, one vision for a post-growth world. And I think it's really important to say that it isn't the only vision. There are many, many other ways of thinking of this. Okay, so perhaps we're working less, spending the extra time insulating our houses, growing our own food, mending clothes, taking care of the environment and each other. But Tim, this path to degrowth makes more sense for us in the global north because we're already rich. We already have enough. And the reason for that is we've extracted resources from and exploited the global south. So is it fair to say to East African countries that, no, you can't have an oil pipeline because we've already emitted catastrophic amounts of carbon? Is it a problem to say they should be looking at degrowth too? Yes, it is a problem. We're not in a position to preach to anybody. You know, I've heard it said that the post-growth conversation is 
a kind of luxury of the developed countries. And I would completely turn that on the head. I think it's a responsibility of the richest economies. It's a responsibility of the global north to change our own development model. Because it's that development model that has created historical inequity. It's that development model that's created the bulk of the impact on the climate and on biodiversity. And I think the Global North's responsibility is not to stand on a soapbox and point at poorer countries saying you can't develop, you can't have higher incomes, you can't do this, you can't do that, is to get our own house in order so that we make room for the development that is essential in those poorer countries. Right now, of course, world leaders, negotiators, climate scientists are gathering together in Egypt for COP27. Are enough of those key decision makers pushing for or even aware of a possible degrowth or post-growth future? (laughs) No, it is such a tough conversation to have, really, at the political level. On the other hand, you know, there are two conversations happening in COP, which I think suggest that there is more room for this conversation now. The first is driven by the IPCC's most recent assessment report and the sense in which actually when we look at how far and how fast we have to go in order to achieve 1.5, let us say, as a, as a target, it cannot be achieved in the timescales under current assumptions about economic growth and technology development. And this acknowledgement really, which only happened in the last assessment report, suggests that there is now a different kind of conversation about what kind of level of growth and what kind of growth is or could be compatible with 1.5 or even two degree targets. And then the other, of course, is the conversation around loss and damage. And this has taken center stage at COP27 for a variety of different reasons. And it's a conversation that speaks directly to the growth-based model and its impacts both on the planet and on the global south. The biggest problem in a way with the entire exercise of confronting the myth of growth is our inability to look at it, our inability to ask questions about it. And it's that questioning I think, that is now possible in ways that it wasn't before. Tim, huge thanks for coming on and walking us through all this. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Tim Jackson. You can find all our coverage of COP27 on theguardian.com. And if after reading about the potential collapse of the environment, you need a little escapism, we have you covered. The Guardian has launched a brilliant new podcast, Pop Culture, with Shante Joseph. Every week, Shante digs into the pop and internet culture stories that are shaping and impacting our lives. Today's episode looks at the latest season of The Crown and asks whether the show may have finally peaked. To listen and subscribe, search for Pop Culture with Shante Joseph wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Madeline Finlay and Ned Carter-Miles. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku and the executive producers with Georgia Moody and Max Sanderson. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.
Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.